Welcome to Season 3 of Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. It's really nice of you to join us. This episode, our special guest for the season's opener, is Kim Moore talking about her Forward Prize shortlisted collection, All the Men I Never Married. Plus, Peter and I will be having our usual banter about what we've been doing and reading over the summer break. So to get us rolling, let's hear Robin's interview with Kim Moore. Kim Moore's pamphlet, If We Could Speak Like Wolves, was a winner in the 2011 Poetry Business Pamphlet Competition. Her first collection, The Art of Falling, from Surin in 2015, won the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. And her second collection, All the Men I Never Married, also from Surin, 2021, is currently shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best Collection. Kim is a lecturer in creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan University. So, Kim Moore, welcome to Planet Poetry. Hi, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking today mainly about your Forward Prize shortlisted collection, All the Men I Never Married. Now, when is the result coming out for this? I keep looking on the web and there's no sign of it on the Forward Prize's website. Do you know? I think, I'm looking in my diary now, if you can hear rustling. (laughs) It's uh, 28th of November, I think. Yes. Yeah, and it's in Manchester this year instead of London. So that's convenient for me. (laughs) So the title of this book, when I read this, it made me think about... um, you know, Tracy Emin's bed, you know, all, all the men I ever slept with. I wonder if by way of introduction you could read the opening poem, because it's sort of a prologue poem at the beginning, isn't there, mm. before the numbered poems. Do you want to start with that? Yeah, so this is the only poem in the book that's not called All the Men I Never Married, followed by a number. I wrote it pretty much at the beginning, quite near the beginning of starting to write the book, as part of my PhD research. And I I remember having a discussion with my supervisor who said this poem should go at the end of the end of the poems oh. and I put it there for quite a while and then I just felt so uncomfortable. I was just thinking about the poem as well that it's the only poem in the using the pronoun we. Oh is it? Yeah, because oh. I was trying to experiment with you know as soon as you use we it's problematic isn't it because you're speaking for other people and the reader um, and, yeah. And whenever we try and speak for all women, it, it's problematic because women are various. And uh, I wanted to try and risk it. We are coming under cover of darkness with our strawberry marks, our familiars, our third nipples, our ill-mannered bodies, our childhoods spent hobbled like horses, where we were told to keep our legs closed, where we sat in the light of a window and posed and waited for the makers of the world to tell us again how a woman is made. We are arriving from the narrow places, from the spaces we were given, with our curses and our spells and our solitude, with our potions we swallow to shrink as small as insects or stretch us into giants, for yes, there are giants amongst us, we must warn you. There will be riots, we're carrying all that we know about silence, as we return from the forests and towers, unmaking ourselves, stepping from the pages of books, from the eye of the camera, from the cages we built for each other, the frames of paintings, from every place we were lost and afraid in. We stand at the base of our own spines and watch tree turn to bone and climb each vertebrae to crawl back into our minds. We've been out of our minds all this time, our bodies saying no, we were not born for this, dragging the snare and the wire behind us. Well, I think it's interesting that you were, first of all, it was suggested to you to put this poem at the end because I agree with you. In the position that it's in, it's intriguing and it has this kind of big mythic feel to it, doesn't it? That kind of, it's a vast landscape that's being played out here. Mm. And now I'm reading it again, a lot of the themes that come again and again through about bodies and silence and parts of bodies. And there's that line about the cages we built for each other. There's as much about women and how women see each other you know it's not just the male gaze it's the women's gaze on the women I wondered if you might read numbers 11 and 12 they're two prose poems that kind of go together back to back don't they and I think this is there's something that goes on in number 12 that I think a lot of poets will be able to 
relate to. All the men I never married, number 11. Once I knew a man who thought he knew everything. I often returned from work to find him asleep in my bed. It was like the sun had slipped itself between the sheets, or a lion, or something else born golden and sure of itself. Even though I knew all the stories about finding people in your bed, how it always ended badly, the three bears, the little girl with the red cape, what could I do but climb in beside him? He must have spent hours shaving his chest and back so that women like me could slide along him, as if we were bodies of water and he the dry and thirsty earth. The man who thought he knew everything never learnt that he didn't, and I realised too late. This was why he was the way he was, as if he'd been touched and turned to gold by a foolish, laughing king. All the men I never married, number 12. After the reading, a man waits around to tell me the poem I read about a beautiful man who thought he knew everything was objectifying men. How would it feel if the gender of the protagonist was reversed, he says triumphantly. I reply that it would feel like most other love poems in the course of human history. He says, aha, so this is really a very ordinary subject. I say, yes, if you discount subversion and poetic tradition and female desire. More accurately, I only get to subversion and poetic tradition and female d- before he interrupts me to tell me how disappointed he is, as I'm a better writer than this, wasting my talent making cheap shots about men. The man in my poem does spend the whole poem naked, so maybe he is a little bit objectified, but I like him that way. I start to write a poem about the opinionated man who is busy shaking his head at my misunderstanding of beautiful men and their complex desires, which I've only skimmed over in my original poem by not giving my man a voice of his own, not allowing him to tell his own story. I'm about to make a general and sweeping statement about men when he interrupts again. Isn't the man in your poem a bit one-dimensional, he opines? Can't you make him more interesting? Just trying to be helpful, he says, holding his hands up like two little flags, like two dishcloths, like two dead moles hung on a fence. I reply, no, I can't. That is the best thing about him. Or maybe I'm just wishing I said that. Maybe I just smiled, nodded my head. Ah, that's it, isn't it? It's, you know, like the two two dishcloths, two dead moles hung on a fence. I mean, where did that come from? I love that. That whole scenario, yeah, just saying. Just trying to be helpful. <laughs> There's a number of poems that portray these microaggressions. And that ending, maybe I just smiled, nodded my head. You use that ending or versions of it quite a fair few times, don't you? This idea of actually it's easy just to just, you know what, um, fine, you know, just demur, just agree superficially and then retreat into this kind of silence. When I'm writing about these moments, I'm always trying to remember or work out why have I remembered that when it was just such a little an annoying exchange, mm. but you know, it's not a big deal. I wasn't physically hurt or particularly emotionally traumatized. I was annoyed, but I remember you remember those things. They're like little fish hooks stuck in your skin. And so the poem is me trying to work out why I've remembered that. And a lot of the poems I ended up coming back to silence mm. and feeling kind of going through these different emotions about silence like feeling angry with myself for my own kind of what I was terming as complicity I read something in Sarah Armored where and just thinking about coping mechanisms with sexism and trying to reframe silence as um, yes it can be passivity but it can also be resistance it can be a kind of um, radical form of resistance just not saying anything or um trying to think of silence as a tool that I use consciously, whereas before I would be using it unconsciously Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then feeling cross about myself afterwards. So I don't go around through my life now arguing with everyone that annoys me in a sexist, you know, that's been sexist and, you know, giving them what for. Sometimes I choose to just bite my tongue. But the fact that I'm choosing now and it's not, you know, that is through writing these poems. They've changed, you know, they've they've changed me and changed the way that I can deal with this, Hmm. with this stuff. I wonder if poem uh, number 26 are playing out of this idea of choosing silence. And you use the phrase, I think, in that poem, a vow of silence. And that comes up later in the book as well, a vow of silence, like a like a positive thing. I think that's a good example, which I hadn't thought about until you said about 
choosing si- to use silence in a different way and looking back at an experience and recognising that use of silence. Right, so this is All the Men I Never Married, number 26. Once I went on what he called a date, and I called driving around in his car, which had one of those exhausts that roared and made people turn and look as we drove down the street. The more we drove, the more I realised his personality didn't really suit the car, or maybe it did. Maybe that was the point. I was also young, and sometimes cruel, and because language had deserted him, I decided I also would not speak. I was annoyed at not sitting in a pub, or eating a meal at a restaurant, even more annoyed when he pulled up outside McDonald's. So I made a vow of silence, though I was perfectly capable of speaking, though talking is something I enjoy. But I was tired of being kind to men, always making them feel better about themselves. I sat like a stone in his car, or a fish he would never hold in his hands. We watched the late-night swaggering of seagulls as they waited for scraps from groups of squealing teenagers who were squashed into neighbouring cars and clambering over each other like puppies. It wasn't his fault I was far away from all of that. How could he know I'd lived with violence and survived? I was only a shadow pretending to be a woman in a car, a stone pretending to be a woman in the dark or like somebody returning from a land nobody else could see, though its borders were under their noses, though its generals lived next door. I can't remember how I got home, or how the awkward silence was broken. I understood violence as something of love, never from a stranger or acquaintance. Years later he finds me online, sends a message. Do you remember me? It's me, Jay. I'm sorry. I was so immature back then. I want to explain that I was a stone in the shape of a fish, the bones of a fish trapped in a stone, but I know it doesn't make any sense. God, I'm frightened for my daughter and the risks she will take. I write back, no, you have nothing to apologise for. At one point you say, it wasn't his fault, I was far away from all of that. And then we have this linking of violence and love. I was really sort of surprised by the ending. Mm. You're not forgiving him for something. You you just weren't taking part in that scene. You weren't present almost in that scene. Is that? Am I reading that right? I'm always interested in um, the space between, Irigere calls it the between us, so rather than trying to write about a person and creating this subject-object relationship, trying to write about that space between us. And the space between us in this poem is just a blank hole because there was no kind of communication. Yeah. I didn't think he had anything to apologise for, but I, hearing you speak now, I was thinking, God, I felt grateful because he was just not a violent person. Like I remember thinking, how could I have just got in a car with someone I didn't know? And just driven off into the night. Like if my daughter, you know, when my which, daughter does that, I'm going to have a heart attack. Yeah, which is as you say at the end, suddenly you're thinking, God, you know, I'm worried for my daughter. It's almost like it suddenly kind of hits you at that point. Yeah, and then the bit, the bits in the middle about, you know, where it takes that dark turn. I think it's me trying to work out what, you know, what was missing. And part of it is this living through violence. I think when you've experienced violence, it changes you and it changes the way that you see the world. And, you know, even even though I was young, it, I didn't feel like I was part of that kind of teenagery young mm. experience because I'd seen too much by that point. I would like you to read number thirty, if you would, which intrigued me because it felt almost like a sort of a healing poem. But I wasn't I wasn't sure about that, so I think you should read it and then let's have a chat about okay. it. Okay. All the men I never married, number thirty. On the way from A wing to B wing. Two prisoners start to circle each other on the long corridor they call the high street, where the leaves gather in corners. They push their foreheads against each other, their arms thrown back behind them. The wind whistles past the canteen, past closed doors, through the high-grilled windows. A guard shoves me through a gate, a hand in the small of my back, locks it after us. We watch men emerge from cells and gather around the two still locked together. It's like an old black-and-white silent movie, except even the black is a washed-out grey. Their jumpers and jogging bottoms, 
the doors a darker shade, the walls an almost white, and just those leaves, bright spots of colour, stirring a little before they settle, brittle enough to turn to dust if I could touch them, and not a sound from the men watching, or the two who are swinging at each other. The alarm shrieks and prisoners drop to the ground like fallen trees, and we turn away. Our men are waiting in the prison library, with poems on scraps of paper in their pockets. Today Matt is leaving, and Jack reads a poem, tells him to never come back, forget they exist. And Joe smiles like he's forgotten how, and Luke says it rains in his mind, all the time. And Arjun tells us about a country where battles were fought with poems instead of swords. They are listening, some with their eyes closed, their heads cradled in their arms, some with their eyes wide open. When the bell calls them back to cells, they walk out of the room and are transformed, back to fallen trees, or they become the wall and never leave or they change into a scrawl of barbed wire and no one ever touches them again, or they become the bars of a locked gate and cast their shadows on each other. They become the silence, they become the corridor, and men walk up and down inside. The men who you're seeing, they're black and white versions of themselves, you know, shadows of themselves, and then each of them by name, each of them reading something, and they become real people for that moment and then back again they become the barbed wire or the locked gate and you know the most chilling line in there for me was the hand in the small of my back so it's sort of a disembodied hand it's an anonymous hand and I think and I know the phrase comes in another poem and it just gives me the chills I think that might be just me actually it's interesting hearing that reading because um I mean poems of course, they don't have to be true, do they? <laughs> but but this this particular one, it's you know, it's definitely based on memory. And that hand is a female hand, but I've deliberately not gendered ah. in the poem. Um, so it's interesting. You assumed it was a man, but yeah. that that moment of it was quite. It was a hard shove because we were in danger because there was a fight about to happen. Yeah. So it was a very hard shove, and. Um, you know, I've changed. I've changed details in the poem. The guard, in reality, was a prison librarian who I was working with, right. who was a friend, a, fr- a good friend of mine. I felt so kind of looked after in that in that moment, huh. and it was all so silent because the prisoners who were fighting they don't want the guards to see. And then um, my my friend hit the alarm, and then as soon as the alarm goes off, they all have to drop to the floor so that they can see it's not them. Right, they can right. see where the trouble is, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, again, that experience in the prison changed my life. I felt, apart from that moment, I felt safer in the prison than I've ever felt walking into a pub as a young, as a young woman. The men were so respectful that it was like being in, kind of like being in school because they call you miss. I think what I'm trying to write about is realizing that those men in that prison, they're moving through a, a, a landscape of violence in a different way and, um, they have to transform themselves to survive. And often I felt like I could, when they walked into the room where we were doing poetry, I could see them physically relax mm. because they didn't have to be those people anymore. And the, the very first week I um, I shook all of their hands to say hello. Yeah. And at the end of the the scheme that we were doing, at the end of my time there, one of them said to me um, as I was leaving, he said, when you shook my hand, that was the first time I'd, anyone had touched me for months because so that physical contact so I'd just done that as one human being to another but it meant a lot um I'm still processing what happened in that in that place and what it taught me about masculinity and and men now there are some love poems really aren't there are they love poems in this collection or are they poems that are they felt like love there are some that feel like love poems to me anyway these are not all men who were ever you were ever going to marry. That I mean, that that's that's maybe sort of an obvious point to make, but it's not like a, a list of old boyfriends or whatever. It's encounters with men of various types, but sometimes they are people that either you had had a relationship with, or or there was a certain wistfulness about the memory of this person. And uh, I wondered if you could read 
one of my favourites in that category, which was number 34. It's such a well-known fact that you're a trumpeter, and this kind of makes reference to that, doesn't it? Yeah, so... Well, the, man, the All the Men I Never Married, number 34 in here, is, is a teacher. There was definitely no romantic <laughs> things with at all. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think the, the the love poems, I like to think of them as poems of desire. So it's kind of characterised by yeah, but, lack of. Well, that's interesting, or, isn't it? Because you know, desire, love, I sort of think love hasn't necessarily got to be romantic love at all. It can be the love of a teacher. It can be the love of, you know, someone mm-hmm. you empathised mm-hmm. with or felt sorry for or knew a long time ago mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, without mm-hmm. it being romantic necessarily, I suppose that's what I meant. Desire, well, that sounds more romantic to me than than love. Yeah, well, not not this one, a poem of desire. But I think I, I, I that point of the men, some of the men are ex boyfriends and some of them aren't. I was kind of I wanted to play around with this idea. I mean, the title is a bit of a Mickey tape, really. Like it, I'm kind of poking fun at this notion, which my my parents definitely still have that you can't be women and men can't be friends it's either you're going out with a man uh, or that's it and they cannot understand like I'm one of my best friends in the world is is one as an ex-boyfriend is someone I was with when I was 18 huh. and I've known him basically my whole adult life and my mum still finds that really odd oh, really um so I'm kind of messing about with that notion that of course there are different types of relationships between men and women and Sorry, I'm getting off. I'm getting off track. That's I'm fine. On... <laughs> no, it's fine. fine. So this is um, all the men I never married. Number thirty-four. I clip the mic to the bell of my trumpet, set my shoulders into a frame that will hold the trumpet steady, hold it true, take a breath, draw myself into my body. I am still, like sand coming to rest in a glass of water. Nobody taught me this. No man could put this into language. Not my teacher, arriving for lessons on his motorbike, long hair streaming behind, unheard of where I was from. A man with a hair bobble, just imagine. He taught me the word gig. I didn't know what it was. Thought it was something like a jig, some grand adventure. He taught me many things. How to be always on the road, rushing, between one thing and another. My first paid gig at the Haymarket Theatre. He taught me to watch the conductor, to mark up the parts with cues, run to the bar and save his place, said, if in doubt, blast it out, and no such thing as an uncertain trumpet. That you could do something you loved and live, that this life, though not lifting, carrying, wiping, cleaning, that this life was work. It says a lot in the last few lines, really. You know, a, a life that's not lifting, carrying, wiping, cleaning. Yeah, it was the first time I realised you could make a living from something that you loved and something that wasn't hard physical graft, which is yeah what all of my family do and did. Yeah, again, it's like going back and I didn't set out to find that out. I found that out in the writing of the poem. Um, I wanted to write about this person because they were important to me, but I hadn't quite worked out why they were they yeah. were important apart from just teaching me how to play the trumpet. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a lovely yeah. tribute. So you put this collection together. Your this was your PhD thesis, basically, was it? Or presumably you you wrote the book and you had to write a huge sort of piece about the process of writing the book. Well, that's traditionally what you do in a creative critical PhD, but. Um, I, I went off piste a little bit because um, I think they've got a lot more flexible now. So it was most of the poems that are in the book, not all of them because I wrote some of them after. But um, So most of the poems in the book, but split into small groups of poems and then interrupted by what I thought of as like lyric essays. And the whole thesis was set out like a choose-your-own-adventure book. So you would read a group of poems, which again, it was me kind of poking fun at the academia and the literary establishment I, I grouped them into like um headings like poems of desire a mode of attention and I th- just to kind of mickey take and showed them <laughs> to my supervisor because I was I want you know when a poet says this poem is about blah 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 in a reading yeah. and I get really cross because I'm like don't tell me what the poem's about I'll decide that <laughs> yeah. so I was like right I'm going to annoy the reader deliberately by going poems of desire a mode of attention and then <laughs> maybe put a poem that doesn't 
straight away fit into that group so that the reader's constantly going, well, why is that here and not in this group? But anyway, at the end of each group of poems or prose, you get like a couple of choices. So if you would like to read about sexism as a slippery and fluid term, turn to page, blah, blah, blah. If you want to read poems in a landscape of violence, turn to page, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of making the reader more um, active. So that was yeah. my that was my yeah. thesis. If I'm if I'm talking, you know, to my mum and dad, it's a choose your own adventure book. If I'm talking in academia, it's a reader directed text. Okay, <laughs> and this went this went down well, presumably. So yeah, yes, <laughs> you got there in the end. But I, I like it the worked. Idea that yeah, yeah, it worked. And I like the idea of the. Lyric. I'm sort of sad that the lyric essays and some aspects of that didn't find their way into this book in a way. Well. <laughs> I'm doing an essay, a book of essays with Seren, and it's basically going to be that thesis, but changed a little bit. Ah, well, this, well, this is a very nice segue into my question of what are you working on now, or what have you got coming out, or what are you, you know, what's the future holding? Yeah, so I've been working on this book of essays basically. So it's kind of my thesis, but it's a book of essays, kind of poised between my memoir, academic essay, personal essay. Um, and there'll be some poems from this book kind of interspersed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So my thesis was looking at experiences of sexism, but then also I'm looking at experiences of performing as a female poet and talking about various things that have happened and then how those experiences of performance and audience reactions then fed into the work in different ways. Oh, well, that sounds really exciting. So Yeah, so that's coming out next March for international women's day hopefully if i get my edits done in time yeah and are you doing your uh festival again your famous festival organizer we need to know what's happening on that front nothing as of yet because yeah we, we've just finished running the kendall poetry festival yes. this june and it was a um hybrid festival oh, okay and it went it went really well it was we, had, we got great feedback from everyone the hybrid bit of it went really well uh, but we're absolutely exhausted I'm, t- I'm saying we me and my my um co-director Claire Shaw um we're absolutely knackered I'm not surprised uh, I mean it's a huge amount of work isn't it yeah I was really really very ill afterwards really? um, it was too much so we're kind of having a stock check is that a right word um, a rain check stock take. oh yeah a rain check a rain that's check what I mean and a yeah stock take. I don't I mean again I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit but I you know I really think hybridity is important especially for festivals I think they should be hybrid okay but I don't think the literature sec- sector yet is geared up and realizes what a massive amount of work it is to do it properly because um yeah I mean I, this is my fifth festival so it's not my first my first rodeo yeah. but this one was 10 times harder and more intense and not possible for two people no Um, we did have a we did have a third person for 20 days that we got funding for and even that was still it was yeah it was unmanageable so I think more funding needs to be put in basically to do it properly so that the online audience a lot of a lot of the time people do hybrid stuff and it feels like as an online person you're just forgotten about. A sort of add tried, on. Yeah. Yeah. We tried so hard not to do that. So we had one of the team always on the online feed talking to people in the interval uh, and speaking to them afterwards and in the chat. And yeah. so everyone felt really included, but that's really heavy. That's on, good. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of, I was going to say manpower. Uh, manpower. <laughs> Person power. Person power. <laughs> so I don't know. So watch this space. Excellent. I probably, when I've forgotten about the trauma, I will probably just do another one because that's what happens. It's like giving birth doing a festival. Is it? You just, for, yeah, you just forget about it and think, oh, I'll just do that again. It, it wasn't that bad. Uh. It didn't hurt that much. <laughs> well, Kim, I really wish you best of luck with your book and it's been so great having you on. Thank you for sharing all this and your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So that was interesting uh, with uh, Kim Moore. I I must admit I had a deep sense of trepidation at the idea of a book called All the Men I Never Married. I thought we were in for some kind of forensic account of all the way that men are completely despicable. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because um, I did say to Kim at the beginning, I wasn't quite sure what to expect um, by reading the blurbs on the back. Yeah. I read those before I started the book and um, I wasn't quite sure either. 
I didn't need a tin hat because I think, you know, she was actually very generous and empathetic about men. Absolutely. And she pointed out, didn't she, the title is a bit of a piss take, really, of course. But Yeah, sort of almost goading academics, you know, which is, is quite fun in itself. Oh, I knew that would appeal to you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, th- that first poem that she read, the, the one that had the we in it, she was almost yes. the kind of, she talked about the uneasiness of talking on behalf of all women being so various. But there was that great sort of mythical feel about it. I, I really liked it. It was, you know, the, the way she was describing, you know, witchy, other sort of uh, women, animalistic, hob- hobbled like horses, I think she said, and being ordered about. And then there's this thing, yes, there are giants among us, you know, just felt like a yeah a real affirmation that actually, you know, this is a, <laughs> the, these otherwise you know, downtrodden people were going to... It was like the onset of a rebellion somehow. Yes, and, and it had this, as you say, it had this lovely mythic uh, feel and, you know, you, you got the impression, well, this is going to be a this is a big topic. And But then I loved the way it straight away went into specific individual incidents and, and portraits and... Yeah, I like that, that end. I, I sort of wrote it down, dragging the snare and the wire behind us, you know, that all those kind of things that are holding you back that somehow striving away from it so in yeah. a way that felt like a really kind of rallying call you know very f- feminist affirmation as a man I found that really quite bracing you know just the sheer vigor of it huh that's good I'm sure that was the intention the fact that you pointed out that last line of that poem dragging the snare and the wire behind us you turn the, one turns the page and the very first poem number one starts with the line there was the boy I met on the park who tasted of humbugs and wore a mustard yellow jumper. So straight away you're into a different register. Yeah, I'm glad that that poem didn't end up at the end. I think it was right to put it at the beginning. Yeah. No, I did as well. The the, the numbered poems all seem to be kind of examples and pieces of evidence, you know, rather than then concluding with that poem, which is the rallying cry, you know, start with it and these are the reasons, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, actually, you're right. Pieces of evidence. It was a bit like that by calling them numbered. Yeah. It was a bit like, you know, exhibit one, exhibit 24, or whatever. Interesting. You know, that pair of uh, prose poems, you know, with the, the sort of golden man lounging around in bed and women pouring themselves over him like water and as if he'd been touched by Midas, you know, <laughs> at the end. And then that, that whole thing about you know, somebody afterwards in the next poem coming up and mansplaining why it wasn't quite good enough. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's very, very clever, wasn't it, juxtaposing those those two poems in that way? I have to say, I've I've had the mirror of that actually, having uh, read poems and, and women coming up and explaining why they're not good enough. So I don't think it's exclusively men that do it. <laughs> oh well, that that's good to know. Is that good to yeah. know? <laughs> in a way, it's good to know. I mean, <laughs> Oh no, dear. but I think there's a difference in tone, really, because the, yes. the the two times that's happened to be women, it's been done in a very caring way, you know, as if you know, oh dear, uh, kind of nurturing, but also deeply patronising at the same time. But uh. <laughs> but that phrase that you picked up on about the the, the hands like two dead moles hung on a fence, I just, that's such a brilliant, <laughs> that's such a brilliant image, isn't it? I love it. <laughs> You can tell her sort of contempt at the, just through those phrases, yeah. can't you, at the end. Very, very good. But uh, she was threading through about, you know, I, I thought it was interesting because I'm always interested in silence and this idea that silence can be a resistance or, or a tool. Yes. Which I, yes, that was interesting, Yeah, I loved that bit. And that kind of awkward poem about going for that silent ride in a car with somebody that – she wouldn't speak to and he couldn't think of anything to say and they ended up up at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, and then years later he he goes back and apologises. I mean, that's so sort of, that is so true, isn't yeah. it? I can think of episodes in my past if I ever had to face those people again, I'd, I'd say, oh, I'm really sorry. But but actual fact, it wasn't re- that wasn't the point, was it? She, they weren't connecting anyway. Yeah. So as she said, he hadn't done anything wrong in that sense. I don't know. I felt a bit toe curled by that, but in a, in a good way, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear a man's take on it. You know, mm. there were some really harrowing testimonies in in the book from women who've been through rape and uh, other yeah. acts of violence. And um, I think I'm right in saying her 
book, The Art of Falling, was really focused on, you know, violence within relationships. Right. So there is that right. uh, uh, there is that strand in her work that is very dark, in a way that what we heard was kind of uh, perhaps some of the lighter side or less dark. Yes, and I think I I asked her to read those. Yeah. I shied off going to the darker places, but uh, but certainly yes, the book is a more com- is more comprehensive perhaps than than we gave the impression in the few poems that I got her to read. Yeah, the poem about the guys in the prison, you know that, that just that god awful, horrid, violent environment, and then mm. the the escape of you know going to the poetry room and uh, you know <laughs> yeah. In a way that you could read that metaphorically as you know the the violence and horribleness of the world, and you know we all creep off to our poetry rooms and you know show softer side of ourselves, perhaps. Yes, but uh, but then with the added sort of irony of these are men who have committed violence. Yeah. Um, we we don't know what exactly. I'm sure she didn't know exactly, but she said it was a well a category B prison. So so that's the sort of subtext, isn't it? Yeah. No, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, you po- pointed to this thing about you know the hand on her back, and she was she in talking about the situation afterwards. She was saying that she actually felt really protected uh, yeah. when she was there. Yeah, just kind of counterintuitive, but re- really great in a way. You know, and that sort of ending up with this idea that uh, in that poem about the trumpeter, you know, that life was work, and that you yeah. know that joyful yeah. discovery that if you find something you love doing for for your work. That is such a glorious thing, and that whole thing about never knowing the word gig before. I just really uh, like that. Lovely, it was yeah. lovely, wasn't it? And um, yes, and then we're back to the sort of the affirmation and the um, uh, of the first poem in a way, isn't mm. it? You know, women finding that they can do work that isn't uh, women's work. Yeah, and breaking out of that and being and being a giant. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, she's sort of. Quite giantish, really, Kim Moore. I think I, I really, really enjoyed those those poems that she read. It's been great to have her on here. I think, and uh, there's a lot of love out there for our Kim. Yeah, quite rightly. I'm sending her some right now. We're back, aren't we, Peter? What what the heck? Season three of Planet Poetry. Did we ever think it would get this far? No, not in our wildest dreams, but it's really good to be back, isn't it? And, it uh, is. Thinking about poetry and oh. reaching out to all our poetry chums via the podcast. Yes. So how was summer for you? Was it full of incident and... I don't tend to, we don't tend to go away in the summer like a lot mm. of people because we live in a in, on the seaside so we live in a seaside town so it's really lovely to be here over the summer but what did we get up to nothing terribly momentous not like you I know you've been moving house and all sorts trying to move house yeah we had to move out of our house and then because of all kinds of complicated reasons to do with the people we were buying from being unwell and things had to Spent four weeks in exile living in Ashford, which is where I am at the moment. Ah, uh, um, yes. And we snuck in a cheeky holiday in Greece as well. Did you read anything exciting of holiday? I've been working my way through a few things, like Chaucer's mm. Canterbury Tales, oh. which I won't talk too much about, really. We've had enough Dante and Chaucer, haven't we? Because coming out of my mouth lately, but uh, but I, I'm quite <laughs> I'm enjoying the old ye olde Chaucer. It's a it's a very nice sort of modern English translation. Yeah. And it's very entertaining. So there's that, that, that sort of, I've been dipping in and out of working my way through that. Then I've got various other things that I sort of pick up mostly by my bedside that sort of in piles. And there's the kind of the, the very challenging pile. And mm. then there's the medium challenging. And then there's the sort of fairly, it, not, not easy reading, but easier accessible stuff. So I suppose I've got things in different piles, but I've enjoyed uh, of those three categories, what I call the slightly easier, more accessible uh, is Helen Dunmore, Inside the Wave. I've read Helen Dunmore novels, but I've never read any of her poetry. And I sort of thought that I must dip into that. And I've really enjoyed this collection. I think it may have been her final collection, but there are poems that refer to her treatment for cancer. and, And I like the way she works with that 
cancer is such a sort of cliche in poetry, you know. We've all had a bit of cancer, so when a cancer poem pops up, my sort of alarm bells go a little bit like, yeah. is this going to be a different take on it? What's this got yeah. to offer? Um, so I'm a bit sort of demanding, but but I, I really liked her writing. In the in the sort of medium pile, we've <laughs> got England's Green by Zafa Kuniel. Ah, yes. Now, I absolutely loved his first collection, Us. And um, so I, I was looking forward to ordering this. So this is new. This is his latest book. But so far, I'm really enjoying it. And I suppose I put him in the medium pub because, yes, he is challenging and he's got a fabulous range of references. Um, so it's, it's he asks the reader to do some work. Hmm. But I just love it. It's such an original take. And in fact, I think what's said in the inside of the uh, jacket is a t- just about sums it up. Zafa Kunial is a proven master of taking things apart, polishing the fugitive parts of single words, of a sound, a colour, the name of a flower, and putting them back together so that we see them in an entirely different light, which sounds a bit bit like a surgeon or something. It's not quite like that. It's very it's very playful, but it's very thoughtful. And I, I just, I love he, his wordplay and... Yeah, anything that can make you... Look at something afresh again is yes, clearly yes. something that works, I think. And also very clever, very entertaining. Uh, I had to look, I look I will have to look things up, but not in a bad way. <laughs> you know, he's got a series of poems inspired by the Brontes in here and um on the difficult pile I've got this book Pilgrim Bell by Cave Akbar, American poet. I started reading I started reading this and thought, oh, this is going to be a bit of hard work. But after about six pages in, I just had one of those moments, you know, when you sort of think, oh, my God, this is a real poet. You know, I found a real, 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 real poet. And and I, I don't know what it is. It's not – I can't put my finger on why. Don't you, do you know what I mean? You have that feeling. You start reading and you're thinking, this is just the – this is it. This is what poetry is supposed to be. Yeah. Um it's exciting. It's exciting to have that feeling, but consequently, it, it is it, it is challenging. I've got it in my challenging path, so I'm working through it slowly yeah. because you can't, you just can't skim it. Well, yeah, that's good. Sometimes I find the poet sometimes the poems you have to or poets you have to struggle with are the ones that do stay with you because you've kind of been forced yes. to get your gloves off and get to grips with them in a way that if it's just a you know, yields itself fairly easily, then you just skim over it and think, yeah, that was pleasant. That's that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, it forces you to put your get take your gloves off and really get into it. It kind of engages you in a way that it, that is memorable. Yeah. And and it just feels like something for me, if it feels like something that I never I could never have written or I could never imagine imagine writing, but wish I could, yeah. then that's uh that's the most exciting thing really. So yeah, well, if it seems to come from a mind that's very different from your own, I mean that that's just really exciting, isn't it? To to be able to glimpse a different way of thinking about stuff. Um, Abs- absolutely, yeah, yeah. I googled him and the, I found a very interesting interview with him on YouTube. Well, there were several, but there was one uh, conducted by somebody at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, so it has a sort of it's a little bit academic. Yeah. But it's really revealing and interesting. This interview, uh, I just, I, uh, you know, I would refer people to to that. And that's published by Chato. Oh, I should say Zafa Cunial, England's Green is from Faber, and Helen Dunmore published by Bloodaxe. Interestingly, I think she hmm. all her books came out with Bloodaxe. What about you, though, Peter? What has been floating your boat lately? In the high summer, I, I was in Greece. I went twice this year, which was amazing. And the first time I was reading The Axion Esti by Odysseus Elitis, which is a, an old book published in uh, the 50s, I think, which is really held up in Greek literature as being something almost equivalent to the wasteland in, in terms of its oh, import. Oh, really? Gosh. Um, a lot of it's dealing with the poet's kind of uh, wartime experiences and also feelings about Greece and so on. I, I've read it several times before, and I was just dipping into that but there's such evocative things about, uh, you know, describing the Greek landscape that 
when you're in Greece and reading Greek poetry, as I've said on several occasions, you know, it just gives you that whole kind of glimpse un- under the shell into the soul of the place in a way. Well, I love the way you talk about Greece and Greek poetry. It does make me want to go, Joe, I've never been to Greece. Oh, have you not? Oh, wow. I guess I never had to go there for work. It's never appealed to me because I'm not a big fan of Greek food. It's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What a, what a reason. But, uh, but So I like to hear you talking about Greek poets. Funnily enough, this is the first time we've been there for about three or four years. And the first person I, I spoke to in Greece said, oh, England always makes me think of history, but Greece makes me think of eternity. Gosh. <laughs> Which was for, she was uh, like a wow. work, work for the travel industry there. And I just, I just thought, <laughs> I have to write that down. It's absolutely brilliant. Philosophical. Uh, another thing, I, I, did, I have been reading, dipping into poetry um, for future podcasts. So I've been kind of reading mm. the, the stuff mm. of people we're about to uh, interview or yes. have interviewed. Yes. But I've also read this book by Robert McFarlane called Underland, and it's a it's a prose thing. But he's exploring underground spaces, so he's like squeezing into long lost caves, and it's all about sort of hidden cities and you know places under the world that kind of harbour pools of deep time and finding mm. you know, cave art and you know contemporary spaces. And it's absolutely it's beautifully written, very poetically written as well. Is he a travel writer or sort of um, creative nonfiction travel um, nature? I'm just looking at him at, on, on screen at the moment. He's best known for his books on landscape, nature, place, people, and language. Gosh, that's a big spectrum. Yeah, he's got s- several books, but this is Underland is his most recent. Oh, I like the sound of that. It's up for all kinds of prizes and things, but yeah, beautifully written. So apropos of kind of nothing, I was thinking about nonsense recently. Think of these words, Robin, chortled, galumphing. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, um, yeah, words that first appeared were invented by uh, Lewis Carroll, and the, uh, which first appeared in the poem Jabberwocky. Oh, is that right? A chortled? Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it just seems like... A, a, a lot of the language in, in the poem seems to be kind of like chortled is like chuckled plus snorted in a way, you know, it's sort of that sense oh, of... Oh, right, yes. You, you can uh, see where he arrived at the... Yeah, sort of neologism sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, the thing that got me fascinated by uh, this nonsense poetry some time ago was I had a friend who thought The Hunting of the Snark was the finest thing ever written in the English language. <laughs> this is pub argument starter. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he was really keen on this kind of stuff. And in the dim and distant past, I, I read a book by this guy called Jean-Jacques Le Cirque called uh, Philosophy Through the Looking Glass, Language, Nonsense, Desire. He He sort of looked at language that strays away from meaning and so you know one of the things he looked at was Lewis Carroll and so on what's interesting about it is like you read Jabberwocky it sort of makes a kind of sense yeah you've got some idea of something going on even though a lot of the words that are, are used are just kind of nonsensical yeah probably I'll just read it because it's very short but yeah. um yeah I do you know the, because the structure of it linguistically is is quite just seems like English. It, it seems very logical, and that's uh, that contradiction with something that sounds perfectly plausible, filled with kind of crazy words. Mm, mm. It, I, I find that really quite exciting. So, <laughs> I think this was first published in. It was actually appeared in Alice Through the Looking Glass. So it was a poem in the text of the children's uh, story. Right. And apparently, he wanted to print it sort of um, in mirror writing, but it was too expensive to do that. But. <laughs> I love that. So, Jabberwocky. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the Jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the Jubjub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. 
And, as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O frabjous day, Kalu Kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borough groves, and the mome wraths outgrave. Oh, that's brilliant, Peter. I love the way you read that. <laughs> it's good fun, isn't it? But I've read uh, say, poems by, uh, say, J.H. Prynne or other writers that I found less meaningful than that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it's funny, as I was listening to that, it, it reminded me of reading, we're back to Chaucer, of reading Chaucer, you know, in the Middle English, and you're sort of, you, you it reads perfectly naturally, and every now and again you're, you're you know, you're thinking, not quite sure what that word is, but because it is sort of English, you sort of go yeah. with the flow because um, a lot of the words are the same. So you're not, yeah. it's not, it's not an entire foreign, foreign language. So I like that. So it, you know, Jabberwocky. So it could have been written in some early form of English, a re- reimagined. I think that's actually how he started it. Was uh, he was doing a, a pastiche of kind of old old English poetry? Right, right. Totally get that. Yeah, I didn't realise it was embedded in. Um, is it? Oh, did you see it was Alice through the Looking Glass? Alice through the Looking Glass. Yeah, I didn't realise that. I thought it was a standalone poem. I mean, it's sort of it became so famous, didn't it? I mean, so yeah. even the first line or so, a lot of people can can quote. Once uh, Alice has read this poem. Uh, she says, it seems rather pretty, but it's rather hard to understand. Somehow it seemed to fill my head with ideas, but only I don't exactly know what they are. That sounds like how we talk about some of the poems that we've read, doesn't it? We're not quite yeah. sure what's going on, but we're having a good stab at it. <laughs> <laughs> 